So let, let me pray. Father, just thank you for the, the words of the songs that we have sung of the of Timothy Dwight saying, I love thy kingdom, Lord. I love thy church, O God. What a, what a great testimony that is of loving the gathered people together where your glory is manifest most clearly upon the earth when we, when we gather together, even as we're doing today and right now. God, and the, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. God, and through toil and tribulation, God, we long to see that time when you'll come back and restore your kingdom with finality. And in that time, oh God, may, may we rejoice in our crucified Savior this day as we just think about your church. And I grow, I, I pray also that for my message today, there would grow in each one of us a, a heart that loves your church, that loves your people, that loves it when people gather together to sing your praise, to pray together, to hear your word, to fellowship together, to share our lives with one another. May that be the fruit of my message this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every church has its own backstory. Every church has its own history, if you will. And every church has its own unique story. Um, I know of churches that began with one man coming into a city, one man with a gospel, not knowing a soul, just beginning to speak with people and telling them of the good news of Jesus, knocking on doors and telling others of a vision for a church gathered together where, where God would be exalted and glorified. And, and from this one man, a church begins. And I know several churches like that. I know of churches that have begun with wealthy individuals, um, Wealthy people who have funded the church from the very beginning, where they have bought a building and, and several staff and just says, we are going to have a church here and, and with the pastors and, uh, with everything all set up from the, from the start, right? They bank the payroll of these pastors and the church begins. I know several churches like this. Um, I know of churches that begin as church splits. Or there's some sort of disagreement in the, the congregation or perhaps sin in the congregation not dealt with rightly and, and half the church leaves the building and goes and starts some other place at the community center the next week. It often happens sometimes when disgruntled pastors maybe perhaps leave and have their own sect of following that begin their own churches. There are churches in town like this. I know several. I know of churches that begin when a, a pastor of a church leaves town and he pursues some other pastor or some sort of ministry opportunity, but after a few years away, he comes back and the, the people in the congregation who have loved him um, and he loves them uh, begin to branch off and they start a, a church with all these other contacts of a previous church. I know of a, ta- I know of a church in town like that. I know of churches that begin by hiving off a, a healthy group of, of people to start a church in another part of town. Um, rather than starting off from scratch, they send 200 or 300 people to begin starting a church some other place. In fact, we had some visitors in our church last week who were involved in this very thing. They live in Prescott, Arizona, and, the, and their church began when, when a bigger church that they were part of hived off over 100 people to start their church on the other side of town. What a healthy thing that they're five years old and they're starting to build a building on the land that they have purchased. And I know several churches that have done that. 
I know of churches that have begun by intentionally relocating a, a dozen families or so into a new town so they can start a, a church in that city. In fact, my daughter, Carissa, and uh, my son-in-law, Caleb, live in Bloomington, Illinois, and um, the, the Salt Company, Cornerstone Community Church in uh, Ames, Iowa, has, uh, with a large college ministry, has just relocated 50 people from Ames, Iowa to Bloomington with an aim to start a college ministry and a church just right there in Bloomington. Their first service, I believe, starts next Sunday. Churches all have their, their stories. And in fact, not all churches that begin end up having even a story at all. In fact, most churches that begin close their doors in five years. I have several friends who have sought to start churches and yet only to see it fail in the end. And yet, as diverse as the stories of churches' beginnings are, there's really two common stages that are, are true of every church. There's the gathering stage and there's the growing stage. The, the gathering stage is when a nucleus of a church begins. And that can be like with many people coming to Christ, coming to believe and trust in Jesus, His sacrifice upon the cross. It can be just even when a core group However they are, they're, they're assembled together and, and then everybody there is telling everybody they know about what they're doing. A new church in town, maybe flyers are being passed out, maybe a bunch of outreach events are taking place. That's the, the gathering stage. And then comes the growing stage when people are coming constantly to the church and they're beginning to be connected with one another and, and discipleship is taking place and the church grows in depth and in breadth. It's the growing stage, the life of, of every church, the story of, of every church. Now, I tell you that because as we open our Bibles this morning to look uh, to the Scriptures, we're going to see these two phases in Paul ministering to the church in Ephesus. So if you haven't done so already, you can invi- I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at uh, just three verses this morning, Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And, and the title of my message this morning is The Establishment of a Church. Because that's what we're going to see. We're going to see the church in Ephesus established. Um, and, and really, for the, for the better part of a, a year now, we have been looking at Paul's missionary journeys. As Paul was sent out from the church at Antioch to go out and to, to minister, to bring the gospel to the world. Um, we, ha- we have seen this first missionary, G- first missionary journey begin in, in Acts chapter 13 where he started in Antioch and he went down through the island of Cyprus and then, and then sailed up into Pamphylia and then went through southern Galatia and cities like city in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, places that never heard the gospel before and many people then came to believe. And, and then he looped back again through those cities and, and while he did his looping back, he was establishing structure needed for these churches as, as there were new Christians Believing in Christ, and he organized them. He, listen to Acts chapter 14, 21 through 23. As they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. He said, I encourage you, like it's hard, life is hard, but through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then establishing elders, setting up leadership in those churches where they had disciples, and then they returned to Antioch. 
Now, last week we were talking about this very map with some of the kids um, afterwards when I did the, the children's notes up here. And, and one of the, the children said that uh, that picture there of the, uh, the, the travels there, it looks like, I think Thatcher, I think this was you. What does that picture look like? The, looks like a banana. Right, so so there we are. There's there's my banana just to try to try to help you in some regards to see the other way. I think that's what it looks like. It looks like a banana. Anyway, I can't change it. Sorry, I can't move it right now. Maybe afterwards we can talk about. It. All right, sorry, I tried that journey about 1,500 miles. Um, took maybe a year or so. We're not exactly sure, but somewhere in the order of of a year took to go all the way out and all the way back. Now, Paul's second missionary journey was much the same. He began in Antioch of Syria, and it's, his journey ended there as well. But this time, the scope of his, of his journey was, was broadened. He, he went into southern Galatia, into Macedonia, and Achaia um, before returning home to Antioch. And here he was in this key town, this key areas there of Macedonia and Achaia. And, um, you know, then, then he returned back to Antioch. So I was thinking about a shape of this missionary journey. A, a race car. Yeah, I tried to remember what you said. I guess in my, I was keeping the food theme. I was thinking it was a it was a burrito. It's kind of what I was what I was thinking about as he went out and back. <laughs> journey twice as long, about three thousand miles. He took, and for best we can tell, it took about twice as long. It went about two years as he went out preaching the gospel in those places and the the key churches that were there. Uh, began during this journey where Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth. These are churches that started through just a preaching of the gospel and people coming to faith and believing and trusting in the Lord. Um, Paul would later write letters to these churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. Well, this week we come to Paul on his third missionary journey. And again, he began his journey in Antioch. And um, it, it says... In Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19, rather, verse 1, it happened while Apollos was in Corinth that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. That's all, all we know. I'm, I'm guessing that he visited the, the churches of uh, Lystra, Iconium, and in Antioch, kind of on his way, but it was quick, and he just came to Ephesus, is what Luke tells us here as he, he wrote that. And last week we looked at verses 1 through 7, which told the story of the 12 disciples of John believing in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit, becoming Christians. This morning, we find Paul establishing the church in Ephesus. It's the main thrust of my sermon. It's what we see in these three verses. You know, I was, uh, someone, one of the children also was talking with him after service and uh, was just, was just remarking about how long we've been in the book of Acts. And just like, wow, we've been here forever. I've been at this church. Um, one of the Ramazina boys says, I've been at this church. The only Ramazina boy, I guess, Jonathan. He said, I've been to this church and all we've been in is Acts. And I said, well, we're not in a hurry, but we're just, we're just pulling out what God says in his word, trying to teach you how to study the Bible, just to look at it and dissect it. And here in our section, verses 8 through 10, we just see how a church was established. A church in Ephesus. And what was established here is the same way that all churches start. With this gathering phase and this growing phase. So let's read our text. Here we go. Acts chapter 19 verses 8 through 10. That's why we sang so many songs about the church. Just because that's what we see. We see a church established here. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 
But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This he continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now the text is short, it's only three verses this morning, but it covers a long period of time. We have two time markers here in the text. The first is found in verse 8, where it speaks about three months. Three months, he spoke to them in the synagogues. And then in verse 10, we see the second time marker. It says that they continued doing this then for two years, teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. And, and during this time, Paul was establishing his church in, in Ephesus. And, and basically, this church and all churches go through these two stages. The first is found in verse 8. It's the gathering stage. And during that stage, Paul was heavy in evangelism. He was speaking to those who didn't know Jesus and seeking to persuade them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah who came to redeem us from our sins, that we simply believe in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. That's what his message was as he gathered these people. And then in verses 9 through 10, we see the growing stage. And during this stage, Paul was heavy not so much in evangelism, but more in discipleship. Focusing attention upon those who had believed, teaching them and training them in the fundamentals of the faith. So what I want to do this morning is begin by looking at the first stage in Ephesus, that is the gathering stage. Let's, let's read again, verse 8, it's really simple. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, Paul's pattern here was the pattern throughout all of ministry. We've seen this for this past year, right? Paul enters a city, and he goes first to the religious people, to the Jewish people, God's people, the Old Testament, the people of Israel. And he'd enter the synagogues where they gathered, and he'd speak to the Jews about Jesus. He would first tell them about the Messiah, and then he say, this Jesus is that Messiah who you are, are looking for. And, and Paul would go to the scriptures, which these Jews held in authority. I mean, in the synagogues, their synagogue services felt just like ours. Just a gathering of people that would, would gather around, that would, would sing their songs, that would chant their, their chants, that would pray their prayers, that would read the scripture, that would hear someone teach about the Bible. These rabbis would. And so during that time of teaching, he would get up and he'd show them from the scriptures that the Messiah is called to, to suffer for the sins of his people and then rise from the dead. And they say, that's exactly what Jesus did. He suffered for the sins of his people and he rose from the dead. And, and those two match and Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So believe in him to have your sins forgiven. That's what he was telling them and here in Ephesus. Though, we see the content was a little bit broader because it wasn't just one message. Maybe that's his first message he started with. And then it said, come back again. And so he came back again with a slight twist on that. And then he came back again and again. And his message probably expanded a little bit to the kingdom of God. Look at verse 8. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He was reasoning with them, explaining to them about the kingdom of God. Now, for some reason, this um, this synagogue here was was receptive to Paul and his message. I mean, three months is a long time for Paul to preach in a synagogue. Oftentimes, he's he's one Sunday. Remember in Sydney and Antioch, he was one Sunday. They said, "Hey, come back the next Sunday." And even before it got to the point of the sermon, they said, "No, no, no, you get out of here. We we hate you and your teaching." Um, in um, in Thessalonica, he was there three Sundays. 
and then boot it out. So three months is really a long time. And there, there's something about these people in, in Ephesus. Um, in, in fact, even if you look at, at chapter 18, it says when, when they came to Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. And chapter 18, verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. And on taking leave of them, he says, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So even from the start, there's something about the Jewish people here in Ephesus who were open to that message. They they said initially when he was there, oh, come back again, come back again. He says, no, no, I got to go to Jerusalem. Remember he had that, that hair thing that he had to have cut for the vow that he was taking? But now he's come back and he's they're, they're receiving him for, for three months preaching about the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't the first time in the book of Acts we've heard about the kingdom of God, nor will it be our last. In fact, the kingdom of God is what begins the book of Acts and what ends the book of Acts. It's what Jesus spoke to the disciples during the time between his resurrection and ascension. Listen to Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. In other words, Jesus risen from the dead, showing his arms, showing his side, showing his feet. Yes, I pierced. I was on the cross. I did die, but now I am alive. And he was appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That is not just particularly the message of the Messiah, which is the most important, kind of the focus of things, but then began to broaden out and think about the the kingdom of God, probably from creation to the consummation when everything is all put together. That's the message that Jesus spoke at the very beginning. This is the message that Paul will speak at the very end of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, the very last two verses of the book of Acts, Paul was there, house arrest, welcoming all who came to him. And he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Just the plan of God in the kingdom of God is what he was um, he was preaching and proclaiming. And, and you remember the verse I read in Acts chapter 14, his first missionary journey, when he went out and got believers in Lystra, Antioch, and, and Iconium. And then he came back through and he appointed elders in every city. He encouraged them. He said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So through difficulty and hardship... And here is the kingdom of God. That's, and this is like a, a vast topic. Probably summarizes the Bible as good as any phrase does. In fact, some theologians have argued that this is the theme of the entire Bible. In other words, right? You ask some, what does the Bible teach? And some might say this. The Bible teaches us how the kingdom of God is being established. Right? That is, God is king over the whole world. And he created us to be his servants. God has sent His Son to be King on the earth, the one who's going to sit on the throne in Zion. You will either bow to King Jesus or you will rebel. In this age, God is gathering up His His willing servants to Him, right? Those who repent of their sins and submit to King Jesus, who, by the way, when we call Jesus Lord, that's what we mean. Submitting to the Lord, submitting to our sovereign. We, We are the slaves, He is the master, submitting to Him. And God is gathering up His willing servants in this age. And at the end of the age, though, He'll come back to squash all rebellion. He will establish His eternal kingdom with God on His throne, His Son at His right hand to rule and reign forever. And so the message today is repent while there is hope. 
and turn to the Lord. Well, that, that's a brief summary of the kingdom of God, which starts in a garden and ends in the new Jerusalem that comes down, which, 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 which starts in the earth. And God's saying, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, right? Conquer the earth, right? right? Rule over the earth. And then we as mankind, we've blown it. We've sinned against the Lord. And so this whole time, then God is restoring things and getting it right and, and sending Messiah to come and save so that eventually he can establish himself as ruler overall. That's the kingdom of God. That's the sort of thing that Paul was preaching about when he was with those in the synagogue that came to hear him speak. And Paul's custom was to speak in such a way to the Jews in the synagogue as long as the Jews would allow. Remember, I've told you before that when Paul would come into the city, he says, Paul, what's your plan? How long are you going to be in the synagogue? And Paul's like, as long as they'll let me until they, they kick me out. Well, they did kick him out. <laughs> Flash, we see that here um, in, in verse 9, because typically the Jews would, would reach this breaking point where they're hardened in their hearts, and they didn't believe, and they wouldn't believe. They'd expel him from the synagogue. And at that point, when he was expelled, he would expand his ministry, not, not merely to the, Gentile, to the Jews, so he would take there, but also go to the, the Gentiles as well. And they often received the gospel even better than the Jews ever had. And this was the gospel. So Paul was not ashamed. He was to the Jew first, and also to the Greek and so we see it coming to the, the Jews first, and then it was the Greek. And this is Paul's method of ministry because it was the most strategic way for him to spread the gospel. Because anyone primed for the gospel, like ready to believe the gospel, would be the Jewish people. They're the people of God, God's chosen people of the line of Abraham. They had the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. They, they knew of the God of the Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures were authorities in their lives. And they sought to follow the Scriptures with every fiber of their being. Now, now sadly, right, many Jews were caught up in the external observance of the law. Right? Just, just trying to do everything out externally, on, on the outside, so as to think that that's the way to God, to please God. Missing the importance of heart religion. God said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Like from in, it should be our, our love for God from within, not just all these rules that we keep on the outside. But they had a base of authority, which is the Scripture. And, and, and that's what Paul sought to exploit by, by pointing them to the authority. And, and, and they were blind to it. They didn't understand it. They didn't see it. But as Paul then went to Isaiah 53 and, and went to Psalm 22 and went to Psalm 16, which speak of the suffering of the Messiah and the resurrection of the Messiah, then, then perhaps, oh, now they get to see it. Now they understand and now they can embrace it. Because if ever the Jews would believe, it has to be because they see it in the truth of the Scriptures. And I think that today, even there are people like that in our society, the Roman Catholics, right? They look to the Scriptures as their authority, which is wonderful. They have a reverence for God, which is wonderful. Church services filled with Bible readings. And like the Jews of old, however, many, many times, Catholics' religious observance are merely just external, thinking they come to God based upon their religious observance and rites and ceremonies. Roman Catholics today are primed to embrace the gospel of Christ. That, that you can come to God, not, not because of all the religious things you do, but, but because of faith in Jesus. Simply trusting in Jesus alone. That's why I received a call about a month ago from Sister Marie at the uh, Catholic nursing home here in town. And um, she said, you know, we just, we've been losing some people who've been speaking at our chapel. And I was just wondering if you would come and speak at our chapel. Would you do that to our residents? And so in my mind, I'm thinking about, okay, Paul went into the synagogues 
to like unbelieving people who saw the scriptures in authority. And uh, I'm thinking it's about as equivalent as anything can be is to go into a Catholic nursing home. So I jumped at the chance. Now, I didn't take that long to, to think about it. I thought about it already and said, yeah, absolutely. As Paul entered the, the synagogue, so I also entered this Catholic nursing home. And my strategy in that was simply to use the Scriptures because the Catholics, right, the Scriptures are their authority. And so I preached from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And I quote it for them, just from memory, just to show a love for God's Word that was in my heart. And then I spoke about the free forgiveness that that is offered. He forgives all your iniquity. And there's nothing mentioned here about right or ritual or things that you need to do. You simply need to fear Him and trust Him. And He is one to forgive. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The love of God that sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins that we might just believe in Him. And I spoke to them of the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins. Now, admittedly, at a nursing home, you have some in the chapel who came to the chapel service who are pretty sleepy if you know what I mean, and pretty, maybe not with it so much. And when uh, some hymns were sung because there was a, a, a good organ player there, um, the um, residents need help turning the pages, so I'm not sure how many of them were. But, but the staff was fully with it. The staff who were helping were, were there and paying attention. And I'm just praying perhaps the freeness of the gospel would, would set in. In fact, Sister Marie told me afterwards how much she loved my time. And she said she has a retreat coming up. And Psalm 103 is what she's going to use then just as a, as a direction for this retreat she's going to use. And next time, if she asks, and if I'm invited in, I'm actually going to go and just use the scriptures, the scriptural authority, and get them used to me. And then we're going to go for the gospel again and again and again and again. It's not the religious observances. It is faith in Jesus. And that's what Paul was doing in Ephesus. He's preaching in the synagogue of that city. And there got to be a point where Paul was no longer welcome. You see that in verse 9. When some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So three months in the synagogue was enough for the Jews. There were these people who were stubborn. Paul was saying one thing, and they just resisted it and resisted it and resisted it. And I'm sure if they would have been in silent resistance, Paul would have just continued on preaching them. Perhaps God would, would break through the hardness of their hearts, even if they continued unbelief. But I think it was when they began to speak evil of the way, speaking bad about Paul, Right, remember in Sydney and Antioch, they were reviling Paul, saying bad things about him in the midst of the congregation, causing this big strife. And, and how can you enter this congregation where there are people there who are just actively against you? Paul just said, okay, uh, I'm gone. And that's when he left, and it says he withdrew from them, and he took the disciples with him. That is, having gathered a, a core group of believers um, through his synagogue evangelism, Paul withdrew taking the disciples with him, and he took them to the hall of Tyrannus. And there he devoted his time to teaching the disciples in Ephesus. It's the, the second stage of every church. Not only do you have the gathering, but you also then have the growing. The gathering is the evangelism, right? Bringing people to, to, to Jesus and bringing people in. And then the growing is just the, the constant 
teaching, growing individually, growing together as a body, growing numerically, perhaps. It's the core work of the church. Taking those who believe and taking them deeper into the truth. You remember when Jesus said, the, the Great Commission, same thing, gathering and growing. He says, go therefore to all the nations, right? baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Right? You, you go out, you gather these people, you get people believing and trusting in Jesus, and then you need to teach them to observe and obey all that God has commanded you. That, that's why a church, you know, it feels maybe like a school. And it, Kids, I know you don't like school very much in some regards, but Christianity is, is, is intellectual. It, it is about knowing the Bible. It, it is about being able to defend your faith. It is about learning from the Scriptures and, and having God imprint the Scriptures upon your heart devotionally with passion and pursuing the things of the Lord. That's why I will stand and speak 45 minutes every Sunday. From the Scriptures, we might know and might understand just what the, the Bible believes. That's the, the core work of the church. Now, Paul was doing this, it says, in the hall of Tyrannus. It says there at the end of verse 9. Some translations call this the school of Tyrannus. Uh, apparently, this was some type of, of building that was open for Paul to, to be in, probably to rent to teach those who'd come to faith through his preaching ministry, right? To teach them and build them up in the truth. Now, literally, we know nothing about this Hall of Tyrannus. We know, well, we know its name, but other than, we know it's in Ephesus, okay? So those are some other things. But we don't know where it was, whether it's in the heart of the city or whether it's on the outside of the city. We don't know how large it was, whether just a couple dozen people could gather together, whether it was a big room like this, or maybe it was a big outside amphitheater or, or covered amphitheater. We don't exactly know, but... We know its name, Hall of Tyrannus. What does Tyrannus mean? Terrible, Terrible, like a tyrant. So it's a hall of a tyrant. Some commentators think that this is a nickname given to the owner of the place. Uh, This is the hall with the the tyrannical, or schoolmaster maybe. Here's the tyrannical schoolmaster. We we don't know. Um, Maybe they call that because they like dinosaurs, like Tyrannus Rex says. I, I don't know, right? But, but here's this place, this Hall of Tyrannus, that, that Paul met in for two years. Very much similar, by the way, which takes place as churches are started today. Churches often rent school buildings. We are ourselves, Rock Valley Bible Church, rented out Rockford Christian High School before purchasing this building. And we're there for 10 years, right? Renting this facility, like the, the Hall of Tyrannus. It's not a new idea. I mean, it works out great, right? Schools are filled all during the week. And then on the weekend, they are, are opened and they lie dormant and what perfect candidates they are to rent out on Sunday mornings by churches. And, and any other building like that can, can be used as well. Community centers can be used. Um, even heard recently of a bank being used, right? Banks are busy Monday through Saturday, but Sunday there's not. And so places of business, it works perfectly with a Sunday meeting. But in this case, there seems to be some type of school is, is where he, he met. In fact, that's often how churches get started in our country. Schools, right? You gather people together. You don't have a building. You don't have funds yet. You meet in a school for a while, so you can build up enough funds to be able to purchase a building yourself. But it's a case of Paul. It seems like he had great access to this place of ministry because verse nine tells us that he was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, every day in this place, speaking and teaching his disciples. Now, some manuscripts add, if you have an ESV, you can look down at your note there. Some manuscripts add from the fifth hour to the tenth hour every day. 
like fifth hour, that's first hour starts at sunup at six o'clock in the morning. And then six o'clock at night is the twelfth hour. So then we're talking 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., which, by the way, is siesta time. In some countries where it's really hot, what happens, you can work in the morning, you work in the morning, and then when it gets unbearably hot, you go home and you eat your lunch, maybe take a nap and rest up so you can open your business later. And Paul said, every business is closed during this time, we're going to, boom, this is the time when we're going to, to meet in the heat of the day. He sees the opportunity to teach the scriptures. And, and, and I think Paul would just say, hey, all who are interested in coming, this isn't a synagogue run by the Jewish authorities. We've got to have this official teachings. If you know anything about the ancient world, like Athens, you know, they had the Areopagus where people just taught their philosophies. And, okay, there's this Christian over there. He's talking about that. Well, hey, let's go listen to hear what, what Paul says today. And I find this amazing that Paul was working full-time and also teaching five hours a day. This is, just shows the capacity of the Apostle Paul. Because later he'd say in Acts chapter 20, to these Ephesian elders, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Like I ministered, I worked, and I got enough for myself and I got enough for others with me. In all things I've showed you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Here we see the remarkable strength of the Apostle Paul. He was able to work full-time, earning enough money to support himself, and yet teach five hours a day in the school. Now, maybe some of that time was prayer time. Maybe some of that was his own disciples that he had trained up who were going to help teach um, there as well. Maybe Apollos came over. Maybe there were others who shared that teaching love, but a lot. But remarkable also, think about that passion that the church had. There were people every day showing up to the Hall of Tyrannus to hear about the things of Jesus. Just incredible passion that was, was stirred in these early days in Ephesus. It often happens during church plants when uh, you're just starting a church and there's a lot of excitement and, and high level of commitment. In fact, Carissa, as she has mixed with some of these people coming from uh, Ames, Iowa into Bloomington, has been super encouraged, by the way, these people coming into town. She said that she's kind of worn out by them. Kind of what she said, just sort of thinking about, wow, all their excitement, their enthusiasm, their passion, they're ready for the work and pursuing, pursuing the work. It's kind of often happens when churches are established. And Paul did this and the people were there daily for two years. Look at verse 10. And this continued for two years. So you think about the ministry of Paul. And he was in Ephesus here for at least two years. <clears throat> Actually, two years and, and three months. But if you read on in Acts 19, which, by the way, is all about Ephesus and all the different things that happen at Ephesus, you find out that verse 22, we see Paul right there with him, Timothy and Erastus, probably some of his fellow teachers, right? He sent on to Macedonia, but he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, we don't know what for a while means, but, but later... When Paul speaks to these Ephesian elders in chapter 20 and verse 31, he's going to speak about how he's three years with them. Three years. Verse 31, he says, Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Such was his passion for the gospel. Such was his passion for teaching the Bible that night and day, three years in the hall, wherever he was, in the homes, in the hall, in the synagogue, preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. There are at least three years. So by the time Paul returns back to Jerusalem at the 
end of his third missionary journey, we, we find that probably he's been gone maybe four years. Kind of, we, we put some time frames on this. And, and so it was, I, I think it's helpful to notice this fact that first time Paul heads out on his missionary endeavors on the banana, which I oriented wrong, sorry Thatcher, but on the banana tour, right, that he, he was there maybe a year or so. And then his second missionary journey, right, when we were on that burrito shape, right, up across there and then coming down, he was, he was there for about two years, right, because he was 18 months in Corinth. And, and now he's been gone about four years. Right, in some regards, it seems right that he's got an ever-expanding ministry. He's got more contacts. He goes out. He spends more time in Lystra, Derby, and Antioch because he's been there several times and they know him and they love him uh, and they serve him. Right, it makes sense with his ever-expanding ministry. Right, increased opportunity for the gospel. But I think the big reason why his trips were extending so long is because it's focused on specific churches. Uh, on his first missionary journey, he was spending several months tops in each of these places. His second missionary journey, he spent 18 months, a year and a half, in Corinth. And I think he began to see great fruit, so much so that here on his, his third missionary journey, he's spending three years in Ephesus. And I can't help but to think that Paul considered this extended time in one place to be a fruitful way to spread the gospel. I mean, think about it. Paul's passion was to spread the, the good news about Jesus in places even that was never known. You read about that in Acts, in Romans chapter 15, right? In fact, his passion was to go out and preach the gospel. That's why he went. But why would he sit in one place for so long if it weren't the fact that that's probably one of the most strategic things that he could have done to spread the good news of Christ dying on the cross for our sins? That by believing in him, we might have eternal life. He, he could have gone to other places, But he remained in Corinth, and he remained in Ephesus for longer periods of time because, I believe, it was the most strategic way to reach the masses with the gospel. To have these centers, these hubs, these these places where where disciples gathered together in in a body. Uh, I remember talking with a a man one time, he talked about doing some missions kind of alone or with, with two, and it was so difficult. But when you get a body around, people come in and they get, they see, they catch a vision of what's, what's going on and when, when the, the love of Christ and how it works in a body, like, oh, now I understand. And, and there's something about that, that it's not just the raw teaching, it's not individual teaching, it is the collective whole of everyone being together, which makes that so powerful. In fact, um, with that, then you extend the reach of the gospel in a greater way. I've heard John MacArthur give the advice to young pastors. He says this. He says, focus your attention, young men, upon the depth of your congregation and trust that God will bring the breadth of your congregation. In other words, you focus on the depth of people and focus on the depth of a body together. And you just trust that God will bring the breadth to that. And that's what Paul is doing. He's spending much time in Ephesus just building into the depth of these people here in his growing Right, growing down, growing deep, growing together as a body. And he saw the Lord expand the breadth of his ministry. Look how broad his ministry was. This is, this is the surprising thing here in verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Constrain, like, he didn't go around all of Asia. What happened was that Ephesus, by the way, the, the commercial center and hub of Asia Minor, which we're talking about, the center of this region was a place with, that attracted so many people to come. Paul's remaining Ephesus was strategic for reaching all of Asia with the gospel. 
And I can only suspect that, that Paul, what was happening is that Paul was preaching there and causing quite a stir and people a, a ways away said, hey, what's happening in Ephesus? We hear this thing and they start talking about it and then maybe they make a trip there. Or maybe a mess. Have you heard what's happening there? And just the, the scuttlebutt, just kind of around from this church was spreading all around so that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And this, by the way, is, is super important because the church in Ephesus was a multicultural church, Jews and Greeks. And if you read the book of Ephesians, it's all about Jews and Greeks living together in unity and harmony. It's Paul's passion and, and heart there. But but here it was in the hall teaching all, all this time and, and uh, making this impact by spending a long time there. In fact, I remember another pastor talking about ministry impact. He says, we often overestimate what we can do in a, a year of ministry but we often underestimate what we can do in a decade of ministry. And I, and I think that's what Paul is seeing here, is that rather just one year in Ephesus and on, he's, he's three years and starting to see the great impact of the gospel in all of Asia. And Paul's ministry in Ephesus lasted a long time. In fact, you can turn over with me. We're going to end my message in Revelation chapter 2, which is the end of, of the church in in Ephesus, maybe not the, the end of it, but here it is, 30 years later, these words were written to the church at Ephesus. And, and listen to the message of this church. This Paul, as he established this church, I believe he established it well to be a strong church. And um, this angel messenger then speaks the word to the church in Ephesus. He says this, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. We see a lot of good things here about the church in Ephesus, 30 years after the beginning and the foundation of the church there. I know your works, right? You're working hard, laboring for the Lord. You are toiling and enduring patiently with the things going on there. And... You're, you're, you're pushing people out. You cannot bear those who are evil, right? Sinning members of the congregation, you are not letting them be there because you cannot profess Christ and yet be engaged in sin. And those who call themselves apostles, you have some doctrinal discernment and understanding. You've tested them. You've found them to be false and you've rejected these false teachers who want to come in. You've kept the heart of the gospel. You've kept it pure even 30 years later. And then verse 3, he says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And this is the Lord Jesus speaking to him. For my name's sake, for the sake of Jesus, you are enduring patiently. You've borne up. You've not grown weary. Here, these people were right there. There's a passion for the Lord. They've, they've continued on. They were suffering, waiting. And then in verse 4, he reads this. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, there's all this discussion. We, we don't know what love they lost. Um, maybe they lost their initial zealous new believer love for the Lord. Maybe they lost that. Maybe they lost their, their brotherly love for one another. It wasn't as compassionate. It wasn't as passionate as it was before. Maybe, in the context of my message, and maybe it's intentionally ambiguous to apply to all of us today, I think maybe that they have lost their heart for the lost. Maybe they've lost their heart for the church. 
Maybe they've lost their heart for what, what they began. I think about these uh, people moving to Bloomington from Ames, Iowa, and they're so excited right now, so passionate. But what's going to be the fruit 30 years later? And what's the fruit in our lives as we have been here? Are we passionate for the, the kingdom? Are we passionate for the church? We sang today, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with His own precious blood. There's a love for the kingdom of God. A love for the people of God. A love to see people bowing the knee to the Lord of Lords. And that happens in the church. Second stanza, I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dearest the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. God looks upon the church with a, with a precious love relationship. He, he loves us, and, and, and I love the church, O oh Lord, because you love the church. And there's just this, this passion here for the church, this excitement about what it is to establish a church. And, and could it be perhaps that they lost this initial church excitement that they had that was willing to meet every day for two years? And just, I mean, they're, they're living lives like we're living lives, but they were so passionate about that that they longed to be together. Could, could it be that perhaps they, they lost their, their heart for the lost? Right? They, they, they'd gone from this gathering stage, this growing stage, just kind of stayed in this growing stage. They missed the whole gathering stage. Because in the church, these two things happen all the time. Like, when you're growing, you're also gathering, right? You're also reaching out. You're also, and that's the message of the book of Acts. Be my witnesses. Right? Be out. Be extending. And be speaking to, to people. And I just say this in application for us. May, may the Lord stir a love for gathering together and, and a love for the lost. And I love, even I think about COVID times, you know, most churches in America with COVID have dwindled in their attendance. Now, some are coming back, but most have dwindled. That means that there's lots of, there's lots of people who used to be attending church who aren't anymore. Maybe 20% of people, I'm not sure. But there's several people, there's lots of people maybe in your relational network who like, you used to go to church, but because of COVID and the mess and the, all the difficulty and staying away, they just haven't come back. Well, maybe now is a great time to invite them back. Even Yvonne and I are just, we we're talking about that recently. Like, are there people in our lives, there are people in our lives who, you know what, they need to be called back to a church. And if they're not going to their old church, like maybe they come to Rock Valley Bible Church. Maybe we ought to be about, there's, there's a love, there's excitement, there's a, a passion that maybe we need to stir up for those who are, are drifting. So are there people like that? I mean, here we get to see the insight of Paul founding and establishing this church. And it, it consists of all this passion and, and desire. Is that where we are? Maybe, maybe that's a love we've lost. And then Paul, and then this, this angel writes to the church at Ephesus, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. At first, I mean, that's talking about, right, establishing the church. He's referring right back to Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. These are the works you did at first. The gathering together as a church where you're excited. And the growing initially as a church. And now 30 years later, somehow, that initial love that you had for the Lord or for others or for the lost, it's, it's just kind of dwindling. And this passage this morning is really calling us to restore that, to go back to what the foundation of the church at Ephesus was like. And, and by the way, this is why I believe that church plants are always needed. Because there's always this new stirring and this new excitement that needs to be brought with people. Because churches always drift in the coldness. Like this church in Ephesus did. Like we easily may as well. Like maybe you have. Like maybe I have. 
And may the Lord work in our hearts to stir us back to this love that we had at first. That we can see this love and this passion when Paul started his church in Ephesus. He founded this, this solid church on the good foundation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified that lasted 30 years and was doing really well. Just that they'd lost a, a little bit of their heart. And may God give us a heart that we have perhaps lost in the years of the history of our church as well. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray right now because, oh God, we recognize where the source of that love comes from. It comes from you. you you're the one that, that gives it, and yet you hold us accountable if we don't have it. And so I, I pray now that you would restore any heart, any passion, any longing that is lacking in us. Um, Father, just would pray that you would stir that back again in me afresh. Um, guys, we, we think about how in the early days we were talking to so many people about Rock Valley Bible Church because if we didn't talk to people about Rock Valley Bible Church, it wouldn't exist. God, we're so passionate back then and, and sometimes even just the busyness of ministry or a, a church that grows to our capacity, God, has, has halted and slowed that. But I, I pray, God, you'd give us a renewed passion, even in the light of, of Acts. He calls to be my witnesses. God, may we be your witnesses. God, wherever we are, God, just to speak of Jesus and to speak of him in a a delightful way, the one we love, the one we serve, the one we hope in, who is our joy. God, that someday this one will reign upon Zion. His enemies will be subdued. The kingdom of God will be established. And in that, O Lord, it's through the, the toil and tribulation tumults of our war. We wait this consummation of peace forevermore. We long for that, but it only comes through Jesus. So stir us in our hearts, O God, afresh to pursue you. And I pray even just for our our, uh, our picnic lunch today that we're going to have with sandwiches and salads. God, may it be something that gives us an opportunity to sit down with people, not to be to be unrushed, to be able to speak with others and talk with others and be renewed in this love and passion that you're calling us to today uh, with one another and uh, just even that that might stir to those outside the church as well. So be gracious to us, we pray. God, work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.